You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me, as always, is the beautiful, the inflappable, multi-talented TJ. Oh, hi. I feel like we need like one of them. That was a really cool introduction, dude. Thank you. Thanks. Now give me a compliment. Made me feel so fancy. Oh, how how was your week? You're not dead anymore. I'm so proud of you. I'm not dead anymore. It's so exciting. She got better. I got better. (laughs) (laughs) that reminds me of um the monty python that's where i got it from you weirdo oh (laughs) oh god so today we're going to be doing part two of karen carpenter picking up where we last left off karen had gotten married and it had been this whole mess of a thing where basically the guy just kept taking 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 And she was just down to like stocks and bonds and points. And she had filed all the paperwork and was supposed to sign the finalized divorce papers on the day that she had died. But of course, because she passed away, that didn't actually happen. Uh, She had worked with, I think, Dionne Warwick. I don't have those notes in front of me. I tried to put them in that drawer and just forget it ever happened. But she had done a music special where she had done a bunch of covers. And the Carpenters had released what would be their final album that wasn't released posthumously. So there's a little catch-up for you. So today we're going to be covering a timeline of Karen's battle with anorexia nervosa. So this is kind of the main focus of her little, journey on... A darker episode. Yeah. It's a it's more of the, the journey of when it kind of started, really, at kind of age 19. Um, and so this is kind of a timeline of her slow deterioration. Because it was bad. Yeah. It was so bad that they actually had to cancel several tours, which we talked about on the last episode. So if you haven't listened to the last episode... Stop now and go back. Yeah. Also, uh, fun fact, when I was doing my research, whoever wrote the initial article, I had to do serious conversion because they wrote her weight in stones. (laughs) And so we actually had to do conversions so that I could read my script because it was in stones. So for the folks at home that don't know, one stone equals 14 pounds. So I hate to have to have you do math, but it's... don't make them do it. And so here we go with Karen Carpenter, part two, and this is more of a rundown of what happened to her health. So in 1996, journalist Rob Hoberger powerfully summed up Karen Carpenter's tribulations in a New York Times Magazine feature saying, if anorexia has classically been defined as a young woman's struggle for control, then Karen was a prime candidate. For the two things that she valued the most in the world, her voice and her mother's love, she felt desperately unloved by her mother, Agnes, who favored Richard, we talked about that before, and struggled with low self-esteem, eventually developing anorexia nervosa from which she never recovered. At least she would control the size of her own body, and control she did. By September 1975 her weight fell to six stones 71 71? or 41 kilograms which tracy what's the conversion on that the calculator says 155 which is not that small but they also said fell so maybe it was 71 pounds if you understand stones please explain 
So by September 75, she was, she weighed how much, Tracy? To like 84-ish pounds. Oh, yeah. Maybe not. So maybe 90 with the 71. We're not sure how that extra little bit works. We're really sorry. We tried. We're really sorry. We really we, tried. We but. tried. Karen's quest to be thin seemed to have begun innocently enough just after high school graduation when she started the Stillman water diet. And we talked about that previously, which was where she basically had to have eight glasses of water a day, avoid fatty foods, and take a variety of supplements, which, I mean, in hindsight doesn't sound that bad. No. But but when you think about how far she pushed it, that's when it becomes problematic. And I think that's the everything in moderation kind of thing that we were talking about before. So although she was never obese, she was what most would consider a chubby 17-year-old at 140 pounds, roughly 140 pounds. It's 10 stones because she was five foot four inches tall and she leveled off at around eight stones, 81, and maintained her weight by eating sensibly, but not starving herself. Even so, eating while on tour was problematic for Karen, as she was described in 1973. When you're on the road, it's hard to eat, period. On top of that, it's rough to eat well. We don't like to eat before a show because I can't stand singing with a full stomach. You never get to dinner, you know, you never get to go out to dinner until like midnight. And if you eat heavy, you're not going to sleep, and then you're going to be a balloon. Karen was shocked when she saw photos from an August 1973 Lake Tahoe concert where an unflattering outfit accentuated her paunch. And I've been there before. Uh, so Karen hired a personal trainer who made visits to her home and recommended a diet low in calories but high in carbohydrates. Instead of slimming down as she had hoped, Karen, to, uh, Karen started to put on muscle weight and bulk up. Watching the Carpenters on Bob Hope's television special that autumn, she remarked that she had put on some extra weight. Richard agreed that she looked a little bit heavier, and she was discouraged and vowed that she was going to do something about it. She fired her trainer and immediately set out on a mission to shed unwanted pounds on her own. So while we go through this, I just wanted to point out really quickly, um, because we are going to talk a lot about weight. And for her height at 5'4", Ideal weight for like a 25-year-old, let's say. Um, I know she started a little bit younger, like 19. But ideal weight is somewhere around 120 pounds, like between 100 and 120 pounds. So when we're talking about her being 84 pounds. That ain't right. That's, that's, that's severely way, underweight. Yeah. And if you're triggered by this, you know, we never want to put anyone in the mindset that you're not good enough. Do what's healthy for you. Do what works for you. So she bought the hip cycle, which is kind of like the yeah bike. But no, some people think the hip cycle, like if I say hip cycle, like you think of that thing where you stood up and it just like. Oh, and it just shakes you? Yeah, that thing. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. Because what it says is that she purchased a hip cycle and used it each morning on her bed. And because it was the most portable equipment, it was packed and taken with her on tour. maybe... So maybe it was a foot one? I think it it seems like it had to be, but like if you Google hip cycle, it looks like a bike. Huh. Maybe you could do it either way? Maybe. So she lost around 20 pounds and she looked fabulous, recalls Carol Kerb, the sister of Karen's then-boyfriend record executive, Mike Kerb. She weighed 110 pounds, for those who are keeping track, that's 7 stones 12 or so, and she looked amazing. 
If she had been able to stop there, life would have been beautiful. A lot of us girls in that era were going through moments like that. Everybody wanted to be twiggy and Karen got carried away. She just couldn't stop. Having witnessed Karen's meticulous routine of counting calories and planning food intake for every meal, Richard complimented her initial weight loss during the break from the recordings as the two dined at Au Petit Café, a favorite French bistro on Vine Street near the A&M Studios. You look great, he told her. And she responded with, well, I'm just going to get down to 105. And he said, 105, but you look good now. Karen's response worried Richard. In fact, for the first time, he paused to consider that she might be taking the diet too far. Friends and family began to notice extreme changes in Karen's eating habits despite her attempts at subtlety. And she would do like childlike things with her food. So she would rearrange and push her food around the plate with a fork as she talked which gave the appearance of eating and another one of her strategies involved offering samples of food of her food to others around the table she would rave on and on about how delicious the meal was and then insist everyone try it for themselves and here you have some she would say and she enthusiastically scooped heaps onto others plates would you like to taste this so i mean she was it was kind of childlike in that way where she's like rearranging oh, that's things childlike i mean i offer like when something's really good i offer bites yeah but you don't but then i eat the rest myself yeah but like you don't like scrape half your food it. off the plate of onto somebody else's but no i guess by the time dinner was over karen's plate was clean but she had disappeared her entire meal into everyone else her mom actually caught on to this ploy and began doing the same in return well this is good too she would say she put food on her daughter's plate and that infuriated karen who realized that she would have to find some other way to avoid eating and you have to remember at this point she's actually still living with her parents because she didn't actually get her own condo till 1974 I yeah. think by the time Karen's weight dropped to 90 pounds or six stones six, she was looking for ways to disguise her weight loss. And then I think that's when you can tell someone really is having a problem yeah. when they're trying to hide it. When they're trying to actually look like they weigh more than they do. Yeah. She was looking for ways to disguise her weight loss, especially around those she knew who would make comments or pester her to eat more. And she began layering her clothing, a strategy that her agent Sherwin Bass Noted in the early part of 1975, she would start with a long sleeve shirt and then put a blouse over that, he explained, and a sweater over that and a jacket over that. And with all that, you had no idea of what she had become. But a family friend, Evelyn Wallace, was shocked when she caught a glimpse of Karen's gaunt figure as she sunbathed topless in the back garden of the, the carpenter's home in Downey, California, one afternoon. They put this screen around her so no one else could see. She loved to go out and lay out in the sunshine. I don't know whether it was what, to get a tan or just to get away from her mother. Anyway, I happened to go out on the kitchen for something and I saw her there. She had just on this little bathing suit shorts on and you couldn't tell whether it was a girl or a boy. She had absolutely no breasts. Wow. Karen's new slim figure required that she purchase some new stage wardrobe and she opted for a number of low-cut silky gowns. Some strapless or even backless, and Bass was horrified to see her bony shoulders and ribs, even her hip bones, were visible through the layers of fabric. He asked Karen to rethink the wardrobe choices before going on stage. I talked her into putting a jacket over the bare back and the bare arms, but the audience saw it. There was often a collective gasp from the audience when Karen would take the stage. In fact, after a few shows, Bash was approached by concerned fans who knew something was terribly wrong but assumed that she had cancer or some other disease. Even critics took note of her gaunt appearance. A review for Variety praised Karen's emergence from behind the drums to center stage, but commented on her deteriorating appearance. She's terribly thin, almost a wraith, and should be gowned more becomingly. That's... I mean, if they're commenting that whatever is going on with her needs to be covered up, like, 
I mean, yeah, it's definitely it's completely rude because really rude because she should be gowned more becomingly. Like, let's break that down for just a second because I'm kind of infuriated. Yeah, because number one, if you think that she's thin, be concerned for her well-being before you worry about what her wardrobe is wearing. So no one really understood why Karen wasn't eating. To those around her, her solution seemed simple. Just eat. Anorexia nervosa was so new that I didn't even know how to pronounce it until 1980, band member John Battis said. From the outside, the solution looks so simple. All a person has to do is eat. So we're constantly trying to shove food at Karen. My opinion about anorexia is it's an attempt to have control. Something in your life that you can do something about. Something that you can regiment. And then that actually just got out of her control. So one of the side effects of anorexia is exhaustion because you don't have the nutrients in your body to... Yeah, you don't have the fuel. You don't have the calories to run your body. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of calories that you need to... eating itself. Yeah. There's a certain amount of calories that you need to eat a day to to be able to function. (laughs) And she wasn't getting enough. And so band members would actually witness her exhaustion. She was lying down between shows, something that she had rarely, if ever, done before. And they were shocked to see how she could be flat on her back one minute and on stage singing the next. Even when doing back-to-back shows, Karen displayed a tremendous amount of nervous energy, said Bash. Unlike her parents, Bash had no qualms about confronting Karen on the issue of anorexia. The fact that she was anorexic was discussed innumerable times, and there wasn't even an attempt to get her to seek professional help. But I believe her family was the kind of family where her mother would say, we can take care of ourselves. We don't need someone's help. This is a family matter. And that can be so dangerous. Yes. When Karen dieted or over-dieted, Bash explained, there was a rush of attention from the family, especially Agnes. Karen had never had the attention from Agnes before, and her mother doted exclusively on Richard. So she actually liked the attention that she got when she would go into, you know, when she over-dieted. Well, because even negative attention is attention. Yeah. The experts say that one of the things that seemed to drive young girls to over-diet is that oftentimes the kids would never get attention in the household. And so they would seek out ways to damage themselves or to stand out, according to this article. That quote-unquote cry for help. Yeah. It's a way of giving, getting love from their family that they never got before. So by autumn of 1975, Karen's failing health could no longer be ignored. In addition to her skeletal appearance, she was mentally and physically exhausted. Although she made it through a series of shows in Las Vegas without a major incident, upon returning to Los Angeles, she checked into Cedar sinai Medical Center, where she spent five days while the doctors ran tests. She suffered a severe case of physical and nervous exhaustion, said Dr. Coblin in a statement to the press. Okay, so this is a quote from the doctor. She had a hectic four-week schedule lined up for Europe, but I could not let her go through with it. My opinion, it would have been highly dangerous for her long-term health. Melanie Maker reported that the Carpenters tour would have been the highest-grossing tour in Britain and that approximately 150,000 people were set to see them during their planned 28-day European trek. Tickets for the 50 shows which sold out in a matter of hours was refunded. It was reported that the Carpenters may have easily lost upwards of $250,000 during the canceled concerts. This is this is scary because under Agnes Carpenter's close watch, Karen slept 14 to 16 hours a day. My mother thought I was dead, she told biographer Ray Coleman. I normally manage on four to six hours. I mean, that they've done studies and like six hours well, is, is okay. Six hours is okay. Okay. Four on the reg. No. No. It was obvious for the past two years I had been running on nervous energy. Her weight eventually climbed to seven stones six, which is... 
104 pounds. We're going in the right direction. Yeah. Over the next five years, Karen continued to struggle with anorexia and bulimia nervosa. And meanwhile, Richard Carpenter fought and won his battle with the quaalude addiction. Bulimia would be a really, really bad move as a singer. Because that destroys your vocal cords because yep. you're constantly... Constantly. With the acidity in your throat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a real bad move. Yeah. But on on a happier note, Richard did beat his addiction to quaaludes, which I can't imagine Yay. what that struggle would be like. I really can't. Then in June 1980, after an unsuccessful attempt to launch a solo career, and remember we talked about that, that she had kind of branched off into a solo career while Richard was in rehab and it was kind of a tempered release. Right. So the project was shelved. Karen announced her engagement to property developer Tom Burris, which we actually talked about also in the last episode and at the beginning of this episode, and he was a terrible person apparently. 39-year-old Tom Burris met a number of Karen's requirements and a potential husband. He was very attractive, very nice, and seemed very generous, said Carol Kerb. Two months into their relationship, Burris told Karen that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. So the couple's plans for a year long engagement was ditched when they announced in July that their plans they had plans for an August ceremony. The push to be married alarmed Karen's friends. According to Karen Ichi Ramon, so this is a different Karen, Karen's friends and the wife of producer Phil Ramon, that's when everybody's antenna went up. Days before the wedding rehearsal, Burris dropped a bombshell. He had undergone a vasectomy prior to their meeting. Karen was dumbfounded. So he offered to reverse the procedure, but the chances that a family would be significantly lessened. And I think you're right. Like in the last episode, he... Yeah. In the last episode, you said it was mentioned that he had refused it. Yeah. It's got, you know, and this comes from... Six of one, half dozen of the other. But it also comes from like several different sources and it's so hard to cross-reference every little single detail. Well, no, no. But what it ended up in is no kids and a divorce. Yeah, so, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. It doesn't either way. Know, at this it point, happened and it's not getting reversed. Yeah, Karen felt betrayed, and I could see why. If it was, you know, and honestly, she could have not gone through with the wedding at that point, or that's I don't, true. I don't think they had gotten married yet. But if they had, you know, annul it because that's they he married her under false pretenses. Yeah, that's a- he had withheld this information for the duration of their courtship and engagement, knowing full well that starting a family was at the top of Karen's list of priorities, and this was a deal breaker. The wedding was off. Karen picked up the phone and called her mother. She cried to Agnes as she explained the deficit that had left her with no choice but to cancel the ceremony. But Agnes told her that she would do no such thing. Family and friends were traveling from all over the country to the, attend the event. Moreover, the wedding expenses had already cost what Agnes considered to be a small fortune. I what am, is that in the... I'm not... Uh, you know what? Okay. We're, we're moving on nope. because Opinion. this is this would be rant number five and I got to edit this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The invitations had gone out. There are reporters and photographers coming. People Magazine is going to be there. The wedding is on and you will walk down the aisle. You made your bed, Karen. Now you have to lay in it. Oh, I have so many problems oh, with I that. So many problems. So but you many know what? issues. <sighs> okay. Then uh, that's where we leave it. Yep. So many issues. So many issues. <sighs> okay. Most of Karen's friends and family had assumed that Burris's lifestyle and net worth were comparable to her own. The expensive cars and other possessions gave him the appearance of being a multimillionaire, but what others didn't realize was that he was living well beyond his means. 
It was it wasn't long after they got married that he started asking her for money, recalls Evelyn Wallace. He'd give her some excuse and then she'd give him the money. He'd ask for thirty five thousand dollars and fifty thousand dollars at a time. What? Holy crap. Oh my god. I don't think I've ever had fifty thousand dollars at a time in my life. I I know I never much have. less ask anyone for it. Finally, it got to a point where all she had left were stocks and bonds. As Itchy Ramon recalls, Tom couldn't afford the house, the cars, her wedding ring. He couldn't pay for anything. Karen began to share with her friends her growing misgivings about Tom, not only concerned about his finances, but his lack of feelings for her. He was often impatient, and she had admitted to being fearful when he would occasionally lose his temper. He could be very cruel to her, said Itchy. But Karen's longing to be a mother proved to be stronger than her desire to leave her husband at their house in newport beach karen expressed to burris her desire to get pregnant and start a family his response was brutal she was still crying hysterically when she called ramon for support burris had told her that he would not even consider having children with her and called her a bag of bones according to itchy I hope I'm saying that name right. If I'm not, I apologize. This marriage was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was absolutely the worst thing that could ever happen to her. That's just awful. I also mentioned that in the last episode. Your husband, yeah. Your husband calls you a bag of bones. And this isn't long after they got married. And this is after she has been basically supporting all of his habits. I don't know what he was spending his money on, but like $35,000 if someone handed that to me. 50 grand at a time. Like, come on. Friends suggested that she and Burris seek marriage counseling. I don't know if you can fix that. <laughs> That's so messed up. No, I agree. I agree. But instead, the Carpenters prepared to leave for Europe and South America. Itchy went along to keep Karen company in reality, however. According to Itchy, laxatives were her major companion. When we were in Paris, we made quite a scene in a pharmacy across the street from our hotel when she needed to buy more laxatives. I suggested natural fruit groups that might relieve her constipation, which is in quotations, so she knew what was going on. But she always won those arguments. Following a brief stop in Amsterdam, the Carpenters arrived at London Heathrow Airport on Wednesday, the 21st of October, 1981. They made numerous promotional appearances while in London, on both in person and on TV. On Thursday, they taped an interview for Nationwide, a popular news magazine that was on the BBC TV. Barely one minute... Into their visit, host Sue Laurie surprised Karen by casting a light on her darkest secrets. This is a quote. There there are rumors that you're suffering from the Slimmer's disease. Anorexia nervosa, Lolly said. Is that right? No, I was just pooped, Karen said with an intense frown. I was tired out. You went down about six stone in weight, I think, didn't you? Lolly asked. I have no idea what six stone in weight is, Karen replied becoming noticeably uncomfortable and increasingly agitated. She struggled to fake laugh, rolling her eyes at the interviewer, who quickly converted the amount to approximately 84 pounds. No, she said, shaking her head animately. No. In actuality, her weight was hovering around 80 pounds even then. The interviewer's continued efforts to pinpoint a reason for Karen's skeletal appearance prompted Richard to come to her sister's defense. I really don't feel like we should be talking about weight loss, he told Lolly. Maybe it's better to take a pass on the whole thing. It's really not what we're here for. I'm just asking the questions people want answers to, Lolly replied. Returning to Los Angeles in November 81, Karen filed for divorce. Leaving behind the pieces of her broken marriage, she set out on a year-long recovery mission, relocating to New York City's 
Regency Hotel in January 1982. This guy's name is crazy, so I'm going to try to say it the best I can. Manager Jerry Wettentraub arranged for Karen and Itchy Ramon to share a two-bedroom suite. Cherry O'Neill, the eldest daughter of singer Pat Boone, who herself had been recovering from anorexia, had recommended Karen consider, consider coming out to the Northwest and seeing a doctor who had helped her. But in Karen's world, one name was synonymous with anorexia treatment, and that was Stephen Levencron. He was a psychotherapist specializing in eating disorders. His successful book, The Best Little Girl in the World, had become a highly acclaimed television movie, which aired in May 1981. Levencron agreed to treat her. Again, here's conversions. He received 100 lire for each hour-long session five days a week, Euro. totaling, oh, here it is, totaling $2,000 a month. So that's $2,000 a month in 1982 money. I liked Levencron. At least in the beginning, Ramon said, no one really knew why someone would get the disorder or how to treat it, so we were really looking for him to save her. Arriving at Levencron's office at 16 East 79th in Manhattan, Karen weighed in at an alarming 79 pounds. A week after their daily sessions had begun, Karen admitted to Levencron that she was taking in a large number of laxatives, and this number blew my friggin' mind. She was taking... 80 to 90 Delcaloxes at night. Holy moly. Yeah. This actually didn't surprise Levencron. In fact... Well, no, I mean, she's at this point, she's using the laxatives. So that's the bulimia side. That's an alarming so number, though. I know, 80 to 90? but you build up tolerance. So this is the bulimia side. This is how she's doing the bulimia without ruining her voice. For quite some time, I was taking 60 laxatives at once, admits Cherry O'Neill, and that is Pat Boone's child, mainly because that's how it came in the box. I would, okay, so there was our answer before okay. that we were questioning was like. Well, and we said to, so for reference, the normal dosing would be one to three tablets. So 60, 80, 90, I mean, that's excessive, but. One thing to note, too, is that they are stimulants. You do build up tolerance to them, too. So, like, if you're using them regularly, they're not meant for that. What actually did shock Levencron was Karen's next just casual disclosure. She said that she was also taking thyroid medication, 10 pills a day. He was shocked, especially when she explained to him that she had a normal thyroid Oh, so she was using that. Well, too. he was using it. She was using it, the medication to speed up her metabolism. Oh, uh, Levencron confiscated the pills. Good move. Yeah, this was the first case of thyroid medication abuse he had seen in a dozen years in the field. According to Levencron's 1982 book, "Treating and Overcoming Anorexia Nervosa," the patient must become totally dependent upon the therapist. Which I feel like that could be Wait, really dangerous. I'm sorry, going back, where did she get the thyroid medication? Because you'd have to have that prescribed by a doctor. Not to dip our toes into another yeah, episode. You don't. But she's a celebrity. She can basically get whatever she wants. That's true. All right. And look what happened to Michael Jackson. Yeah, okay. According to Levin Cron's 1982 book, Treating and Overcoming Anorexia Nervosa, the patient must become totally dependent upon the therapist. Once the patient has transferred their dependence to him, he tries to teach them how to create their own sense of identity, which seems... That's uh, weird. That seems like backtracking. That seems like a weird thing. And he gets them to disengage from their dependencies on him with new behaviors, 
habits, and thought patterns. Karen took advantage of the beautiful spring weather and began a new exercise routine uh, to and from her sessions with Levencron, a brisk two-mile round-trip walk. This was yet another method to burn extra calories. Exactly. Two miles is a long walk. Outwardly, Karen seemed committed to the idea of therapy, but evidenced by her daily walking regimen, she was not as committed to making actual changes that would result in real progress. She was still walking a lot. She was exercising, Carol Kerb says. And then she was into throwing up and taking pills, and that makes you lose water weight, debilitating, things like that. So she would have that healthy outlet of, you know, doing the brisk walk, but then she would also do the self-destructive behavior. Mm-hmm which is never healthy. And at this point, the the therapy is not working. Several months into the sessions with Karen, Levencron began to suspect that she had fallen off the wagon. He invited the carpenter parents and Richard to a 90-minute family therapy session at his office. They did come to New York, finally, Ramon recalls, and only after a lot of nudging. And by then, Karen seemed to be starting to turn the corner a bit emotionally. The stigma surrounding mental illness and the need for therapy was frightening for the family, especially Agnes, who felt Karen was simply going overboard as far as dieting is concerned. If only she would stop being so stubborn and just eat. Over the years, the family tried every possible approach to get through to her and make her eat. Everyone around her did everything that they could have humanly done, Richard said in 1993. I tried everything. The heart to heart, the conjoling, the holler. It'll just make you crazy. Obviously, it wasn't about to work, and I was upset. Levencron explained that the family's attempts to threaten or bribe Karen out of her behaviors would never make them go away. According to his book, quote, Failure of the family to understand that this produces division within the family that in turn results in feelings of anger and guilt. The family atmosphere is chaotic, reinforcing the anorexic's belief that she... It's just a she. Not they, not... She or he, it's just she. Well, yeah. I mean, how old is this book? Is that is that book, you know? Yeah. They're just assuming it's only females. The family atmosphere is chaotic, reinforcing the anorexic's belief that she and no one else knows what's best for her. Levencron suggested to the family that Karen was in need of a more tactile, demonstrative kind of love. Karen cried uncontrollably during this meeting. She told them how sorry she was for having to put them in a situation where they felt the need to defend her upbringing, and she went so far as to apologize for ruining their lives. I think Karen really needs to hear that you love her, Levencron told the family. Well, of course I love you, Richard told her unreservedly. And this is the part that gets me. He turns to her mother and says, Agnes? And she says, nothing. And then he, like, taps her foot. Like, yeah. And then rather than address her daughter, Agnes explained how she preferred to be called Mrs. Carpenter. Well, I'm from the North, she continued, and we just don't do things that way. Agnes can't do it, said Itchy Ramon, who discussed the meeting with Karen and Levencron after the family left. She couldn't do it. In therapy, you're basically stark naked. Then your own mother can't reach you. And the way she doted on Richard. It's just unfortunate because it's what your child needs in that moment and you can't give it to them. And you're being so obstinate against being vulnerable and opening up in that way that then instead of just giving them what they need, even even being physically prompted, that instead of even faking it, you're going to instead turn around and berate the person trying to 
give your kid what they need. It's just, and she's like, just asking for a basic motherly like emotion. A basic acknowledgement. Just say you love your daughter. If you want her to get healthy, let her know she's loved no matter what, and she will not do it. According to Itchy, she had this this kind of idea that a kid would try to dance as fast as they could to make their parents love them. But it was at that point where I think Karen decided that it was time to take a step back. After the meeting with Levicron, Richard became angry with the treatment plan, which he thought to be worthless. He was upset that Karen had not checked herself into an inpatient facility as one would do to conquer substance abuse. And I think he had something to say about that because, you know, he had checked himself into a facility and gotten... I think that's kind of a valid point, too. Yeah. Because this guy is clearly not helping her. Well, she also doesn't have checks and balances that an inpatient thing does. And as you said, spoiler does. alert, he's not a real therapist. Yeah. But think about it. She's being allowed to see him at his sessions with her, you know, on a, a regular schedule. But he's not policing her grocery list. Right. He's not watching her. He's not her. able to watch how she's eating, what she's eating, giving her proper nutrition and balance. Like Because the other thing, too, is that when you're in treatment for anorexia, they have to kind of watch how much you're eating because you're not going to be able to sit down and eat a normal portion of food all of a sudden. You well, can only eat small small bits. He uh, So Richard and his parents made a return to California and chose to keep their distance after this painful encounter. They made no further attempts to contact Karen's therapist. We find uh, what I find interesting. Levin Cron stated in 1993 is that in the entire time Karen in, was in New York, I got zero calls from the family. I have never treated anyone with anorexia nervosa whose family didn't call regularly because they were concerned. Richard never claimed to have received a call from Levincron. So there's no communication between the family and the therapist, and the family structure is tantamount to what she's getting in therapy you know we were talking about in the first episode about agnes's kind of domineering personality and doting on richard could cause this internal struggle within karen right and to not have that support when she's going through this it is mind-blowing that they wouldn't reach out and and try to have a communicate with someone who's supposed to be taking care of their daughter but if they don't think that it's actually working and that it's helpful or in Agnes's case, even acknowledging that there is a problem, then they wouldn't. And here we go. Karen and Itchy were surprised to learn that Levencron was not actually a doctor. We used to call him Dr. Levencron all the time. What? I know. Now we've already spoiled it. Yeah, that we already <laughs> spoiled it, but he's not actually a doctor. It does um, not surprise me. Crazy man. We found out that he wasn't even a real doctor. Any medical issues she had, we had to go see this other doctor at Lenox Hill Hospital. You're paying this guy $2,000 a month in 1982 money, and he's not a real doctor. Yeah. He's just making stuff up on the fly. Like, oh, maybe this will work. According to Evelyn Wallace, Karen picked the wrong guy to go to. He wasn't even a doctor. It seemed like Levencrom was simply trying to talk Karen out of having anorexia, but she talked to him and she'd go back into the same routine. So basically, like, he was just kind of trying to talk her out of anorexia and not actually providing any of the actual steps to... I mean, well, yeah, just as Richard said, he did not think that it was actually helping at all. Yeah. Because it wasn't. Because Richard, it wasn't legit. Because Richard would listen to Karen and uh, cared about her. By autumn of 1982, Karen showed no real signs of progress. In fact, her walks to and from sessions with Levencron kept her body weight beneath 
the six stone mark, which was 84 pounds, 84 pounds, which is well below what I mentioned earlier. The ideal being somewhere between 105 and 120 pounds for her. Yeah, you have like 40 pounds to go. Ramon called Levencron and voiced her concerns. Look, Karen's getting thinner and thinner, she exclaimed. Plus, it's obvious that she doesn't have her usual energy anymore. When do you expect this to turn around? She's just skin and bones. The therapist agreed that Karen seemed extra tired and was not responding as quickly as he had hoped and vowed to try another approach. After his next, after her next session with Levencron, Karen asked Itchy if she could borrow a swimsuit. What? Itchy asked. There's no pool in the hotel besides it's cold out. No, I have to wear it tomorrow for Levencron, Karen had answered. The two stopped by Ramon's apartment to pick a size 2 light green bikini that belonged to her. Karen changed into the bikini and emerged smiling. Itchy was mortified and unable to hide her reaction. Why does she need to wear a bikini for this creep? That's does a really good say? question. Um, I think it... I think it actually says if it if it doesn't we can do a, an aside okay. on it because I'm not actually sure. This is really weird. Yeah. All right. So Karen's happy with the way she looks in this bikini, and Itchy is just freaked out. Freaked out. She was like, "I I guess you can use it tomorrow." Returning to Levencron the following day, Karen was asked to change in the bikini and stand in front of the office mirror. He urged her to survey and evaluate her body. She really didn't see any problem with how she looks. This is a horrible technique because that's the point. Because that exact reason is that when she looks in the mirror, she doesn't see a problem. She sees the product of her hard work. She does not look at that and say and think that it looks disgusting or looks too thin or she doesn't see a problem. She sees the product of everything that she has been working towards. And working for. Okay, I see exactly what you're saying. No, so it's like, it's, it seems like he's almost doing positive reinforcement. Just like, what do you see when you look in the mirror? And she's like, right. perfection. And she's like, yeah, this is what I've been working for. All right. So she she actually thought, Itchy recalls, that she was gaining weight. But she had actually dropped a pound. So she's at 79 pounds at this point. Oh. In mid-September, Karen phoned Levencron and told her that her heart was beating funny. She was quite upset, anxious, and confused. She complained of dizziness to an extent that she was unable to walk. Despite not being medically qualified, he recognized her symptoms as those of someone who was suffering extreme dehydration. So Karen was admitted to Lenox Hill Hospital on the 20th of September 1982 to begin intravenous feeding. I'm about to say a paragraph, and there's a lot of medical words in it, so I'm sorry. But the next morning, she went into surgery to have a small bore catheter implanted within the superior vena cava, or the right atrium of her heart. An unexpected complication was the discovery of the latter when she complained to the nurse of an excruciating chest pain, and the x-ray revealed that the doctors had accidentally punctured one of her lungs. Oh, no. In an attempt to insert the tube. How awful is that? That's not good. As her lung began to heal, Karen's body responded quickly to the artificial means of feeding. The intravenous feeding process completely replaced all of her nutritional needs, and precise daily calorie intake was dispensed through the catheter. The loss of control was known to often spark fear in patients. I get that. Like, can yeah. you? I mean, if you can think about their mental state, yeah. like, well, they, they fought for the 79 pounds. So as much as... They're not going to eat on their own. There comes a point where medically you would need to 
use the tube to get them the nutrients they need. But yeah, it, it wreaks havoc mentally on these patients because of that whole loss of control and that they're being forced these calories. One of the quotes that I have for Karen is that, and I'm, I'm going to quote it better at the end, but basically she was like, I can't control anything in my life, but at least I have control of my body. And imagine right. that one thing that she thinks that she has control of is all of a sudden gone. Yeah. Like she's basically strapped to a bed being well, forced. Realistically, she didn't have control of her body to begin with because she was out of control. Well, that she thought but, she but, had but control. Mentally, she thinks that she had yeah. control, even if on the outside she doesn't or that, you know, we, we think that she doesn't. Yeah. But but she had this false sense of control. Okay. So. The loss of control is often known to spark fear in patients and doctors who oppose the intravenous feeding, arguing that it doesn't teach the patient to eat properly. However, Karen went along with it and gained 12 pounds in just a few days. Solid foods were slowly introduced, reintroduced to her as the level of assistance from Karen's IV lessened and she continued to gain weight steadily. Unlike many other patients, she seemed pleased and excited to show visitors her progress. Well, that's good. Well, she's finally getting what she needs. She's finally getting the medical attention that she needs to... Proper attention? Yeah, I know. And care? Go figure. Richard flew in to visit her on the 25th of October, and like most who saw her, was shocked and saddened. She was still horribly emaciated and barely identifiable by this stage. Well, that's too bad, though, because she's making progress. And like, she feels better. Like It's, it's hard because they... She had gotten to a point where it would have been horrible for them to see her initially, but it's hard because it's like they're they're still upset and sad and shocked, and it's like, but wait, no, she's actually doing good. Like, don't do that to her. Like, yeah, she's doing well. But I think also that I think that they they think that this is an easy fix. Like, there's a fast track way to do this. Well, like, like Agnes said, well, just eat. Yeah, well, it's not. That's not the solution. And there's so much more to go into it. And, mm -hmm. and But people expect now that she's in the hospital and she's getting treatment. They don't understand what it actually takes to get to that point that she was when she was 17. Or, you know, they're, they're expecting a, a fast fix. So when he showed up, she was like, see how much better I look, she asked. And Richard nodded in agreement, but it was only to appease her. In an attempt to divert the attention away from himself, Karen told him of other patients who are doing much worse off, but he was not sidetracked. Karen, this is crap, he said suddenly. Don't you understand this is crap? You're going about this the wrong way. This guy isn't getting thing, anything accomplished because you're in a hospital now. On November 16th, Karen visited with Levin Cron for the last time and presented him with a farewell gift, a framed personal message in needlepoint. The large green-threaded words, mm -hmm. you win, I gain served as tangible proof of the long hours Karen had spent alone in the hospital. Learning of her plan to leave, Levenkron reminded Karen that she was abandoning the program much too soon and treatment takes at least three years. And see, at this point, I feel like he's now... That's... There shouldn't be a... A, there shouldn't be a time limit on recovery, and B, he's charging a ridiculous amount of money for doing what I think is minimal amount of work. And, well, and, and she... he's not a real doctor no he's not and she did much better on the program when that she ended up on at lennox hill yeah 
He suggested a therapist in Los Angeles so that she might continue a routine of sorts when she returned home, but she actually declined him. She promised to call him and swore that she would not take any more laxatives or diuretics. Agnes and Harold, and remember Harold is Karen's father. He hasn't right. been as present in the story as he was in the beginning, but met up with her at Levincron's office that day. The couple had flown to New York City to bring their daughter and her 22 pieces of luggage home. It was obvious to most that Karen's treatment was inadequate and ending too soon. She tried to get help. Her longtime friend, Frida Franklin, said she went to New York to try. It just wasn't the right way to do it. If it happened today in this world, I think Karen would have lived. I think that she would have had a good shot. They know so much more. We were basically dancing in the dark. So Karen ate a really good Thanksgiving Day meal to the delight of her family, and then she called Itchy that night to tell her everything that she had eaten. She said to me, I ate this, I ate that, and, and all of my favorite things, she recalled. She was so proud of herself then, and we were all very proud of her. It, it seemed like progress. She should be proud of herself. I mean, that's, that's hard. This is hard. In the weeks that followed her return to Los Angeles, Karen went back to shopping and socializing without delay. Although others felt that she was still kind of fragile and thin, her Albert, who had first signed the Carpenters to A&M, said that he saw Karen shortly after the New York trip in the new year that he recalled her looking terrific. She bounced into his office saying, hey, look at me, Herbie. What do you think? How do I look? Albert agreed that she looked happier and healthier than she had been in some time, and, and she felt that she had kind of appeared to have won the battle. I'm so happy, she told him. I'm ready to record again, and Richard and I have been talking about getting the group together and performing. Despite her high spirits, she was taking more naps than usual and sometimes laying down by 7 in the evening. Richard did not believe that she was well, and he told her so. I feel like Richard's kind of the hero of this story. Just like the through line of him is just he's trying to take care of his sister because he like actually well, he cared genuinely about cares her. about her. On Thursday, the 27th of January, Florine Ellie drove to Century City for her weekly cleaning of Karen's apartment at the Century Towers, where the housekeeper made an unnerving discovery. When I was working up there, I found Karen. Ellie says she was lying on the floor of her closet. She gently shook Karen, who awoke but was groggy. Karen, is there something wrong, she asked, and Karen replied, no, I'm just so tired. And Ellie said that she should probably go lay down on her bed. Karen was a little bit hesitant, but she ended up, you know, taking Ellie's help and getting tucked into bed. Florine checked on Karen again before leaving. By then, she was awake and adamant that she was okay. Tuesday, February 1st, found Karen dining with her brother, this time um, somewhere on Sunset Boulevard, and they were joined by stage producer Joe Layton, and the trio discussed plans for the Carpenters' return to touring. Karen ate with enthusiasm and after dinner returned to Citry Towers. That was the last time that Richard would see his sister alive. The next day, Karen spoke with Ramon, who was pregnant with her and Phil's first child. Karen shared her plans for the week. She would sign the final divorce papers on Friday and then prepare to leave for New York. That week, the 6th of February, she was going to hop on a plane uh, so that she could be there for the birth of Itchy's child. Aww, which is really sweet. That is sweet. Shortly after midnight, staying overnight with her parents, Karen went over her to-do list with Frida Franklin by phone and finalizing the plans for the next day. And this is a quote. I'm going to drive in. There shouldn't be a lot of traffic, she said. According to Frida, Karen enjoyed keeping up with the traffic reports. Nice. <laughs> hey, in L.A.? Yeah. That's important. Well, and then back then, yeah. like you just had KFI. Oh, yeah. Because we, we have Sig Alert now, and you have Waze now, and Google Maps, and we have all these great things. But, like. Exactly. So you got to pay attention to traffic have to pay reports. Attention. 
so she said that she was going to drive in, and then they were going to get their nails painted with red fingernail polish, which was a quote. So basically, she was going to drive in and get a manicure she pedicure. Get a she was going to get a mani pedi. The two of them had a nude appointment for a manicure in the celebration of her divorce. On Friday morning, February 4th, Karen awoke and went downstairs to the kitchen where she turned on the coffee pot her mother had prepared the night before. She went back upstairs to get dressed. When the coffee was ready, Agnes dialed the upstairs bedroom phone, but its ring heard faintly in the distance went unanswered. Agnes went to the foot of the stairs and called for her daughter, but there was no response. Agnes found Karen's motionless body lying on the floor of the walk-in wardrobe. Her eyes were open but rolled back. She was lying in a straight line and did not appear to have fallen. It was like she just laid down on the floor and that was it, Agnes recalled. The autopsy report listed the cause of death as... Okay, so here's some more medical words, so I'm sorry if I am mispronouncing them, but they're really long and I'm not that smart. The, <laughs> the autopsy report listed the cause of death as emetine cardiotoxicity due to or as consequence of anorexia nervosa. The finding of emetine cardiotoxicity, which is ipecac poisoning, revealed that Karen had poisoned herself with ipecac syrup, a well-known, commonly, it's a well-known drug that's commonly yes. recommended to induce vomiting in cases of overdoses or poisoning. Levencron claimed to know nothing of Karen's use or abuse of ipecac. In their phone calls, she had assured him that she was maintaining her new seven stone ten figure, which is... 108 pounds. And had completely suspended the use of all laxative. He never suspected that she was resorting to something much more lethal. Because, again, she wasn't getting proper help. This just makes me furious. Well, in a radio interview taped shortly after Karen's death, Levencron discussed the autopsy findings. According to the LA Coroner, she had discovered Ipecac and started taking it every day. There are a lot of women out there who are using Ipecac for self-induced vomiting. It creates... Painful cramps, terrible taste, and it does other things that the public isn't aware of. It slowly dissolves the heart muscle. If you take it every day, every dose is another piece of that heart being torn apart. Also, it should be stated that they actually removed it from the shelves. And I think you can only get it by a prescription or by doctor now. Makes sense. Karen, after fighting bravely for a year in therapy, went home and apparently discovered that she wouldn't lose any weight with Ipecac, but then she'd just make sure that she didn't gain it anyway. I'm sure she thought that it was a harmless thing, but in 60 days, she had accidentally killed herself. It was a shock for all who treated her. In one of Levencron's most recent book, Anatomy of Anorexia, the author boasts his above-average rate in working with those who suffer from eating disorders. In the last 20 years, I have treated nearly 300 anorexics, he wrote, and I'm pleased to state that I have a 90% recovery rate. But tragically, though, I've had one fatality. That was Karen Carpenter. Just saying. <sighs> so the now was the last song that the Carpenters recorded in April of 1982. Though Richard was concerned about her health, he thought that her, her voice sounded as good as ever. In December 1982, she gave what would be her last performance at her godchildren's school. Given what was to transpire, it turned out that the Carpenter's last performance was in December 3rd, 1978, a benefit performance at the Long Beach Pacific Terrace Theater for the CSULB Choir. A few weeks later, on February 4th, 1983, she was found unconscious at her parents' home where she had been visiting. Although she was rushed to the hospital, she was actually pronounced dead of a heart attack 
soon after, and now we know it was due to the Ipecac. Karen was only one month away from her 33rd birthday. Doctors revealed that her long battle with anorexia nervosa stressed her heart to the breaking point. A portion of Karen's solo album started in 1979 while Richard was undergoing his addiction treatment was commercially released in 1989 with some of his tracks as remixed by Richard being included on the album Loveliness, the final album of the previously unreleased material from The Carpenters. In 1996, the complete album, titled Karen Carpenter, was finally released. The Carpenters made eight gold albums, five platinum albums, and many top hit singles. They received three Grammy Awards and were voted Best Band, Duo, Group, Pop, Rock at the first annual American Music Awards. Karen's death inspired the Karen A. Carpenter Memorial Foundation. It was established to help raise funds to find a cure. Carpenter's singing has attracted critical praise and has influenced several significant musicians and singers, including Madonna, Cheryl Crow, Sonic Youth's Kim Gordon, Shania Twain, Natalie Imbrilla, and Katie Lang. Paul McCartney has said that she had the best female voice in the world, melodic, tuneful, and distinctive. And she has been called one of the greatest voices of our lifetime by Elton John. Her drumming has been praised by fellow musicians Hal Blaine, Cubby O'Brien, and Buddy Rich, and by Modern Drummer Magazine. In 1975, she was voted Best Rock Drummer in a poll of a Playboy readers, beating Led Zeppelin's John Bonham. Okay. She was so good at being a drummer that she beat out one of the best drummers in the world. That's awesome. I love being a woman. <laughs> <laughs> On October 12, 1983, the Carpenters received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It's actually located at 6931 Hollywood Boulevard, just a few yards away from the Dolby, which is the formerly the Kodak Theater. Richard, Harold, and Agnes attended the inauguration, as did many fans. She was originally interred at Forest Lawn Cypress Cemetery in Cypress, California, but her remains were moved to a new location at the Pierce Brothers Valley Oaks Memorial Park in late 2003. So on December 11th, 2003, at 1230 Pacific Standard Time, Agnes Karen... Pacific? Pacific. Don't you know what Pacific is? Nope. (laughs) It's the rainy part of our state. Obviously. Duh. I don't know why it has Pacific Standard Time here, okay? <laughs> Just, okay. Agnes, Karen, and Harold remained in their original caskets and occupied three out of the six spaces in the Carpenter's private mausoleum, were exhumed from the Forest Lawn Memorial Park, reinterred in the Pierce Brothers, and that's actually in Westlake Village. We should go visit that. Yeah. Their mausoleum is a 46,000-pound Parthenon structure, and was constructed in Texas over several months. It's polished sunset red and features crystal patterns, and it's located in the Tranquility Garden section of the cemetery. Similar structures constructed at the time had a price range of about $600,000. The inscription says, A star on earth, a star in heaven. In 1999, VH1 ranked the Carpenters number 29 on its list of 100 Greatest Women of Rock, in 2010, Rolling Stone ranked Carpenter number 94 on its 100 Greatest Singers of All Time, calling her voice impossibly lush and almost shockingly intimate, adding even the sappiest songs sounds like she was staring directly into your eyes. Carpenter's death actually brought a lot of media attention to the condition and other conditions that go along with anorexia nervosa. The condition had not widely been known beforehand, and her family started the the foundation that we talked about, which raises money for research on anorexia nervosa and other eating disorders. Carpenter is known to fans as lead sister. This originated 
from the mispronunciation of lead singer by a Japanese journalist in 1974. And she... That's kind of awesome. I'm sorry. You know what's even more awesome? (laughs) Is that she actually had a t-shirt made with a nickname on it, and then she'd wear it to live shows. Oh, that's that's so great. I love it. Okay. And then I want to just talk about the biographies because some of them are bananas one in particular there is a 43 minute me and will actually sat down and watched this and he was just confused but i actually had to watch it in film school (laughs) okay because we were doing uh, like multi-media productions and multi-theme production but basically we were talking about different films in different genres and the tools that you can use for storytelling. And so my teacher made us watch this movie. It's called Superstar, and it's 43 minutes. And this guy, let me see if it actually has his name. It's shorter than our two episodes combined. Yeah. It's shorter than our (laughs) first episode. (laughs) It's called Superstar, the Caring Carpenter Story, and it's directed by Todd Haynes, and it was released in 1987. And here's why we were talking about it. The whole movie, it they use Barbie dolls for the characters. What? Yeah. So he does the whole movie with Barbie dolls. And so he'll have like the Barbie, like the Barbie that's talking, he kind of shakes it. Okay, yeah, that should not be longer than 43 minutes. Well, it was 43 minutes. It was actually withdrawn from circulation in 1990 after Haynes lost a copyright infringement lawsuit filed by Richard. The film is derived from the their their famous song Superstar and over the years it's actually developed into a kind of a cult film and it was actually included in Entertainment Weekly's 2003 list of top 50 cult movies. It's bananas to say the least. It's weird. On January 1st, 1989, a similarly titled made-for-TV movie, The Karen Carpenter Story, aired on CBS with Cynthia Gibb in the title role. Gibb lip-synced all of the songs to Karen's recorded voice, with the exception of The End of the World. Both films use the song This Masquerade in the background while showing Karen's marriage to Burris. The movie helped revive Carpenter's critical standing and increase their music's popularity. Richard Carpenter helped in the production of the documentary Close to You, Remembering the Carpenters, and Only Yesterday, The Carpenter Story. And Randy Schmidt wrote a biography about the Carpenters entitled Little Girl Blue, published in 2010. And a lot of this part came from that book. And it was based on interviews with other friends and associates. The New York Times said the the book was one of the saddest tales in pop. So to kind of sum up, Karen's death is ranked number 30 on E's most shocking moments in entertainment history. And songwriter Peter Cetera, Chicago, wrote Making Love in the Afternoon about Karen. And, you know, I always like to end on quotes. So here are a couple quotes from Karen Uh, Not enough people in this world are happy. And the second quote is, The image we have would be impossible for Mickey Mouse to maintain. We're just normal people. I think that's her talking about her and her brother's image, that they were these like super squeaky clean people who had no scandal and they they weren't, you know, behind the scenes they were a train wreck, but out in the public they were perfect. You know, that was like, why can't you be more like Karen and Richard? Right. That kind of thing. And she's just saying, like, the idea that she would be able to maintain that is... Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's not attainable. And then my last quote is that I may not be in control of anything else, 
but I am in control of my body. And I felt like we needed to end on that one because she was not. She wasn't, but she thought that she was. Yeah. Well, that is the disease. And I want to end the show on this, which is by saying uh, Netta or Nita is the National Eating Disorder Association. It's the largest nonprofit organization that's dedicated to supporting individuals and their families affected by eating disorders. They serve as a catalyst for prevention, cures, and access to quality care, and you can find them online at nationaleatingdisorder.org, or you can call the helpline at 1-800-931-2237. So if you or someone you know has an eating disorder, again, there are multiple places that you can reach out to and get the help that you need. So that will about do it for this week. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you want to check out our Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rockandrollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at rockandrolllt. You can find us on Facebook at rockandrollheavenpod. Our Instagram is rockandrollheavenlt. Again, still not saying our website. It's going to be in the show notes. And you can also email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. So we're going to be announcing the winner of our comic contest next week, which Tracy is going to be doing River Phoenix. So that's going to be an awesome episode. So you guys, please make sure to check us out. Again, have a great week. Keep rocking in the free world. Good night, TJ. Go to bed. (laughs) Night, LD. You too. It's so late, you guys. (laughs) So, so late. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.